in order to speak yourself into the narrative of freedom, right? You have to go back to that historical point where that question of freedom begins. And that is with the spiritual. So this female engagement with the spiritual, you know, takes on these very expansive levels of meaning, right? So there's this amazing story that you've almost certainly heard before about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington. At one point, as King is giving his speech at the Lincoln Memorial in front of thousands of people, the great gospel musician Mahalia Jackson, who King had specifically requested sing before he spoke, exclaimed, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. And King starts ad-libbing, and soon enough, he utters one of the most famous lines in American history. That said, this history-making moment, this highly mythologized moment, was just one of many examples of how music and politics intersected during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in August of 1963. King's speech is the most mythologized moment of that day, but it represented only one of many perspectives from a diverse and deeply contested coalition of civil rights activists. And as my guest today will discuss, some of the most radical voices of that march, both politically and musically, were those of black women who have often been ignored or neglected in histories of the civil rights movement. Tammy Kernodal, professor of musicology at Miami University in Ohio, has dedicated her career to uncovering the histories of crucial but oft-overlooked Black women musicians, including those who performed at the March on Washington, and that will be the subject of our conversation today on sound expertise, and I'm your host, Will Robin. One quick note before our talk. For those of you who aren't super familiar with 1960s civil rights lingo, three acronyms will come up occasionally. SNCC, CORE, and the SCLC. These each refer to three major civil rights organizations with their own politics and constituencies, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Congress of Racial Equality, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Let's turn now to my conversation with Professor Tammy Kernodal on sound expertise. So let's start maybe by talking a little bit about the 1963 March on Washington, um, which is, you know, often kind of simplified in, in historical accounts to focus just on the I Have a Dream speech, this very famous Martin Luther King speech. Um, but it was a much bigger and kind of more widespread event. Um, and you've written about this, and there are a lot of different kinds of speeches happening, performances happening in different settings throughout this march. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of spatial nature of the march and some of the different music that could be heard throughout this major event? Yes. So, you know, the march is, you know, unfortunately kind of edited down to what, you know, consists of really the last few minutes of it. It's a nine hour event that takes place over three geographic kind of locations, right? And so, you know, we oftentimes fixate on what happened at the Lincoln Memorial, but that was that was only the latter part of the march. The march actually begins uh, about 8 a.m. in the morning um, at the Washington Memorial. And, and what the march organizers um, really uh, envisioned was that this would be, you know, a, a very... Um, a very wide sonic experience. And so from the very beginning, they positioned music as being central to the message of the day um, and music being very important in terms of um, promoting 
what was their intentions of the march. Um, so I want to come back and talk about the intentions. So, yeah. but there's this geographic expanse, right? So you've got uh, Washington Monument and Lincoln Memorial, but in between you have this space, which is the march space, right? Um, and that's a space of where we see really all the factions um, really coming into play and, and, and the real politics of um, of protests really being meted out. And what I mean by that is, you know, the march route itself, um, it was, it was split into two different, um, two different pathways to the Lincoln Memorial, but they also, that, that splitting also came to symbolize the real gendering that took place at the march. So, you know, that female speakers were actually excluded from the march. And this was, this was something that was argued um, in the planning stages that none of the female leaders within all of these other, you know, civic organizations would be on the podium or be given the opportunity to speak. So, you know, there was much protest about that in discussion. So, you know, you have the women who are kind of leading part of the march participants in one direction and Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph and all of the leaders of the big organizations taking a different route, right? Um, but you also in that space have the, the younger factions of the movement actually contesting what is this sanitized soundscape that's going on in these other two, you know, major spaces. Mm. And and so you've got SNCC and CORE and the song leaders, and you've got all of these different delegations from states that are in ground zero, like in the midst of all this violent space, who are beginning to protest against, you know, the Odettas, the Joan Baez, the Peter Paul and Marys, you know, who aren't even really engaging the crowd so much, but performing. So they are performing their own repertories in this, this other sound space, right? Around these memorials and around the march, um, uh, the march path. And so you've got all of these different, um, you know, uh, different competing uh, sounds and genres and even performance aesthetics that are happening in this space. And it very much speaks to how, while this is the high point of the movement, because this is really the cresting of the movement, because, you know, from here on, the movement is globally and internationally recognized. It's not just compartmentalized in the Black press anymore. It has a global face now. Um, But it really speaks to how even in that moment, right, that, that this coalition is tenuous and it's going to fall apart and everybody has a different long game go in and the long goal is very different right and 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 just how disjointed the movement was even though you know it's it's important it was really just in some ways disjointed well i mean that's you know it's you often see people kind of mythologizing this moment and you see the king speech and you look out at the crowd and you assume like it's just this unified movement and like you know there's a lot of nostalgia for that too right and so it's interesting to think of it as like Yes, this King speech is happening, and yes, but like everything in that space is so is so fractured and contested. Um, it's a mess. It's a mess, and and you know part of it was the mixed messaging. You know, uh, Bayard Rustin and King and these other leaders wanted it to be uh, kind of a a propaganda moment, right? Like and it was not display, a protest. Yeah. yeah it was mm-hmm. a display. Like we're going to, we're going to prove to white middle America that we have the same belief 
and and we're going to put on this face. And so we're not going to necessarily try to rock the boat, but what we're going to do is in this very assimilationist kind of approach is project to white America why, you know, civil rights this or this is what an integrated America looks like cuz you know you've got Burke Lancaster, you've got Marlon Brando, you've got all these white and black celebrities that are on this play in this moment, right? So this is like, ooh, we're going to project to this. And the younger faction is like, no, we came here to 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 rip stuff up. We want to rock the boat. You know, we want to we want to um say emphatically America, you need to step up and stop. And, you know, and this is why John Lewis is such a battle uh, for John Lewis to change his speech, right? And it's up until moments before he gets ready to take the dais before he concedes to change his speech. But his speech was very fiery, you know, and it really spoke to how the young faction of the movement visualized, you know, civil rights and social change and how that was so different from what this older guard visualized. And King was in the middle. You know, right. King was trying to to bridge both, you know, and he understood both, you know, but he was kind of caught in the middle. So to turn to kind of the music, the the kind of integrationist model, that's the one that's kind of been most popularized in historical memory is kind of why we associate to a certain degree the Civil Rights March with figures like Bob Dylan and, and Joan Baez, right? So like these white white folk musicians who are already very well known among white listeners, like tell, talk a little bit about how uh, how they came to represent in some way some of the sounds of the marches. And then maybe let's talk about the other people who are making music mm-hmm. at the march as well. Well, I think they really represented that close relationship that developed between the folk movement, the second wave of the folk movement and the civil rights movement. Um, but also how, you know, there are these underlying political ideologies that brought them them essentially together. Um, Baez and Dylan in particular really, rep- and I would say Peter, Paul, and Mary, really came to represent the kind of coalition politics that the movement was trying to project, right? When Especially when we look at the 1960s, because we got to think about how different the movement is in the 60s than the 50s. And we can come back and talk about that. But, you know, college students were so central to that shift to direct action, nonviolent campaigns in the 60s, right? And it's largely Black college students first, but but white college students begin to come into this mix as well, right? So you're bringing in... Um, a a music base and a cultural base with white college students that is is also you know uh, drawing in black students with Baez and Dylan and and they're hearing that music because they're in these moments of protest together, but you know Dylan and Baez also represented a different type of artist activists right and how. Uh, they they really positioned themselves as part of this larger community advancing social change, right? And so, um, so you know, I think it was it was only it was only paramount that that they would end up being there, right, right. alongside Odetta, because uh, these were people who actually went. You know, Bias marched with King. Bias went to these rap. You know, she just didn't do these concerts. She she was out there. Um, you know, uh, trying to march and really work on behalf of the movement. So I think it really speaks to that kind of racial coalition that was there um, in the, in this early part of the movement. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Odetta um, mm-hmm. as a kind of figure in this moment. She's also mm-hmm. someone who's kind of been the most, you, you talk about her being one of the very first kind of musical voices in the civil rights movement. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about her politics and her music and how, how that operated at, at the march as well? So Odetta is very interesting to me because Odetta, um, really exemplified the kind of radical uh, politics that were, you know, 
coming out of a certain generation within the civil rights movement. She wasn't as young as as some of the members of SNCC and CORE, but her consciousness had been shaped by uh, World War II and by seeing in particular her, her Japanese neighbors. Uh, she grew up, her, most of her formative years were spent in, in Los Angeles. Um, and the neighborhood she lived in was quite diverse racially and ethnically. And, you know, she, she speaks very clearly in, in many of her interviews about seeing her Japanese neighbors uh, being sent to uh, determent camps, right? And, and how, how the U.S. government had decided to, uh, to politicize them but not Germans, right, and not the Italians, and how that was part of a shaping of her consciousness alongside the racism she experienced. And then she's radicalized because, you know, she's operating in the underground of of the folk music scene of the 50s, right? And and Robeson, this is a person who 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 is very explicitly saying out loud, Robeson radicalized me. Hmm. Paul Robeson. Yes. At a time when most people are, especially black performers, are acting like, you know, they don't know Robeson or they never had anything to do with them. And so, you know, she's she's influenced by not just Robeson's uh, radicalness in his political ideologies, but how he visualized black folk music as being this kind of black national uh, a form of, of 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 culture, right? And and you know he's amongst many who were having these conversations. But he really said, you know, we needed to look at uh, the blues and ballads traditions and the spiritual traditions, and through a different lens than what was being presented to us by John and Alan Lomax, right? And all of these other um, folklores who were really sanitizing you know what were these kind of political ideologies so you have odetta in some ways bridging a lot of cultural political and ideological um gaps you know and and this is why in my work i look at her as as kind of a central figure for us understanding the emergence of song leaders within SNCC and CORE that are on the ground, for us understanding the emergence of people like Bernice Johnson Regan, um, even Fannie Lou Hamer as a a song leader, um, because what she did was um, she came to embody what was work that was happening in the 50s, right? With Robeson, uh, Paul Robeson, also Josh White, uh, and other and people who were 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 really kind of ciphering this political current out of this black folk music, but she came to embody that in a different way in the late fifties and sixties, right? Um, reclaiming that, but also re redefining for a younger generation the importance of that music at a time when we have to think about. You know, Odetta's coming to a height of popularity at the time that Ray Charles and Sam Cooke, and we're beginning to see the beginnings of Motown. I mean, you know, Motown is being envisioned in the late 50s, early 60s, you know. So, you know, the beginnings of a shift culturally and sonically that's happening in Black America, but she's drawing them back to a historic past. Right. And so what was her role in the march? What did she perform? Spirituals, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. So she performs, I think, what is one of her her greatest pieces that I think really links her to the spirit of the movement. It's called the Spiritual Trilogy. And, And it starts with Old Freedom, and it goes to uh, Come Go With Me to That Land, and it ends with I'm On My Way to Free Freedom Land. Now, these were all spirituals that in some ways were shifted and altered in some, you know. And so, you know, she here we have her operating in the same spectrum of freedom songs that are used on the ground in that, you know, she's 
she's tweaking the words. I'm on my way to freedom land was out, was on my way to Canaan land. Right. So she's, she's, she's providing this next generation, a language, a language in which to, to document their experiences that are happening on ground, but also a language that can help unify all of them. Cause when we look at the repertory of, freedom songs that come in out of that movement, you know, many of them are these recomposed spirituals. So she performs this spiritual trilogy that, um, uh, you know, came very early in her career, her debut album. Right. Um, and it is it is one of the most it's one of the most emotional high moments of the movement. There aren't many because even the performers were told this is this is how we want you to maintain. Right. And and most people don't know this performance. I'll tell you that this even if you look at footage of the movement that's available publicly, she's she doesn't appear. What's, that's very interesting to me. I don't know if there's copyright situations, but most people don't even know she performed this at the Washington Memorial. Uh, but I found a, a transcript of the radio broadcast that took place, oh, wow. which was not censored in any way or edited. It's just the full, you know, transcript. And it's this moment where the crowd, you know, like she draws in the crowd. The performance comes to a height. It replicates kind of what we hear in these mass meetings in these moments. Um, and she's called back to the stage. And she she comes back to the stage and sings this very mournful uh, spiritual, uh, you know, uh, and 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 really symbolizing what is you know the 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 weariness uh, of of the injustice and the brutality and the trauma that's taken place. <laughs> And I think it really signifies as that her at that moment as as being very different from Dylan and very different from Bias. Like Dylan and Bias could could garner an audience, right? But but Odetta could really bring multiple constituents, right? Um, by her way of kind of welcoming people into a performance. So there's a kind of coalition musical politics happening mm. in what she's doing almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted mm-hmm. you. No, 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 yeah, yeah. no. That's a perfect mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. That's a perfect way of characterizing that, right? You know, and and this is why, like, there's. I write a chapter. I'm writing a, a trilogy on civil rights music. That's very, and Odetta is the first it chapter in the book that looks at kind of popular music. You mm. know, popular with a little p. Uh, and and I the chapter's called The Mother of It All, because I found this quote where she says, every you know, people think uh that I was modeling Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, but they were modeling me. I'm the mother. Uh, you know, I'm I'm the mother, right? They're drawing. And that's true. Because yeah. Dylan says, you know. Uh, that Odette is the reason why he became a folk musician, right, you know, right. uh, and bias sings is singing the repertory that, that uh, Odetta makes popular, you know? So in, in some ways, you know, she, and she also represented how King, Dr. King had a role in curating this music. Her 
Eva Jesse, Camilla Williams, um, and Mahalia Jackson. He, Dr. King is one of the reasons why they are performing on that day. Because these are women musicians that he identified as being key voices of the movement. But also, you know, individuals who work aside on, on side of his SCLC, right, to really kind of um, to bring people in, to bring cash in. And that's something we have not con- always considered. You know, what is this, this, this history of, of Black women, particularly Black women concert artists? Because we know Odetta, you know, and, and, but Camilla Williams, the famous opera singer, you know, um, Eva Jesse, the famous core director. Few people know that, you know, they really were doing these benefit concerts on behalf of the SCLC. Right. Tell me a little bit more about about Williams, um, who sang at the march. Right. She sang the national anthem because Marian Anderson was stuck in traffic. Is that right? Yes. Like, what yes. was her role that day? How did she get involved? What were her kind of politics? Uh, at that event? So, so I have to tell you, I have a personal connection to Camilla oh, well. Williams because Camilla Williams was born and raised in my hometown, Danville, Virginia, and and she was kind of one of my first introductions to. Black concert music or concert music um, because she used to come home sometimes in the summer and she would do these concerts. So, you know, I have a very early memory of her singing uh, arranged spirituals in my home church um, when I was a little girl. Um, And she epitomized for, you know, uh, for not just people in my community, but uh, within Black America as a whole, you know, this symbol of Black excellence, you know, because she was the first Black woman to play uh, Madame Butterfly, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and had had all of the success as a concert artist. Her husband was a well-known civil rights lawyer. Um, and uh, when the march happens in 63, Almost a few, well, a few weeks before that march, or I may say even a few months, if I can characterize it correctly, the the movement actually comes to Danville, Virginia. So SNCC comes to to Camilla Williams's hometown, uh, my hometown, uh, even though I'm born years years later, and it serves to be one of the most bloodiest civil rights campaigns outside of Birmingham. Right. Now, most people don't know that because, the, you know, the, the media were actually kept out. They were suppressed. They couldn't cover Danville. Danville's um, police department really, you know, uh, were able to suppress any of those the reports of what was happening there. So I say all of this to say that, you know, she had that connection with SNCC. In fact, she came and did some benefit concerts back in the community to raise money for the movement. But she was one of many black concert artists that um, that King knew by virtue of, you know, these, you know, her husband's work, but also, you know, uh, because of her black achievement. She would have she was going to be one of those people, you know, so and very civic minded. So so she actually does two performances. Most people know about the national anthem because, you know, as you said, Marian Anderson gets stuck in traffic and is unable to get there. So they call upon Camilla Williams. She jumps at the occasion and does it. Can you see by the dawn's early light what's the last Broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight. All the ramparts we watched were so gallantly strewn. But she also sings a Negro spiritual. Um, after that, that is oftentimes not heard. And it's, it's one that is one of her signatures, 12 Gates to the City. Um, and, and so, you know, she and, and Anderson and Eva Jesse really embody this 
what I like to call black exceptionalism. You know, if we look at this, this um, notion of American exceptionalism, that's, that's really promoted heavily after world war II, um, where, you know, that America becomes a superpower, right? You know, black America was really trying to do the same thing and, and showcasing who are these individuals that made these exceptional achievements? And so when you look at a Camilla Williams and you look at Eva Jesse and you look at Mary Anderson, who are there in that day, even even Mahaya Jackson, even though there were some people who didn't want Mahaya Jackson because they didn't right, think she right. was polished enough. Right. Mm. You know, they they represented Black achievement, Black exceptionalism. They represented how Black people, when given the chance, right, could thrive in these largely white or majority white environments, right, um, and, and how they could appeal in many ways to, you know, some of these tenets uh, of white America, you know, cultural tenets, you know, belief systems. So, you know, so Williams's role there was very central in terms of promoting that idea. So when we were, when we opened, we were talking a little bit about the kind of gender politics of the march and, you know, these women that you focus on, um, you know, part of what makes these performances radical is that they are women in this context, right? Can you talk a little bit about the fact that like you have these women's voices being suppressed and the march in a way, but then you also have these black women performers and, and musicians performing? Like, what is that kind of tension? Um, yeah, that's the interesting dichotomy of it, right? So we're going to mute you from having any political uh, perspective, and we're not going to acknowledge you as leaders. And I mean, and I'll be, I'll be fair. So they did have a moment where they had, uh, you know, uh, um, Rosa Parks, uh, Megger Evers' wife um, and uh, Dorothy Height and and some of these women leaders, they had them like stand up mm. and be acknowledged, and they sat <laughs> down. Like, oh like, like I mean, it's the worst thing. Like, <laughs> I, I took me a while to reckon with this because I was like, they really thought that that was okay, right? You know, and so and this is this it's this thing where we won't let you speak. We will only let the men speak about this notion of freedom, right? And it speaks to what is something that oftentimes isn't talked about in terms of the civil rights movement. And that is that it, it's always been very male-centric. It's always been about, you know, if Black men can achieve, uh, you know, uh, racial equality, that the rest of the race is all of a sudden going to experience that. And that's not the truth, you know, because women are dealing with unique circumstances and experiences that aren't oftentimes folded into that public narrative of, of civil rights. And so it's like, we, you know, we won't let you talk about what uh, uh, what freedom looks like or what freedom should be, but we'll let you sing about it, right? And, you know, and so it's this subservient role, like we would rather for you to be these accoutrements, right? You know, you, you come out here and you look the part and you play the part, uh, but we're not going to let you talk. That's the male point. That's what men are here for. We'll let you sing, right? And I think it, it really, it really, uh, represents also what Farrah Griffin talks about in her piece, When Melindy Sings, when she talks about how Black women's voices are, are oftentimes used as this larger unifier, right? That, that Black women are brought out to sing and it's supposed to, you know, uh, mediate tensions, but it's also supposed to, in some ways, kind of epitomize uh, these utopian notions of unity. And, and, and white America does it, but I think in this instance, we see how Black men are doing that and, and, and utilizing Black women in that way as musicians. Right. And the common kind of musical thread among all these performers, as you mentioned, is spirituals and all mm -hmm. these different kinds of genres and settings. Can you talk a little bit about like, what about the spiritual 
acquire so much kind of political significance at this point? What are they, what are these musicians doing by performing spirituals in these contexts? Um, you know, in this, I guess it's this kind of post-Paul Robeson idea. But. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, it, it is on one hand is representative of how black women's engagement with these songs, even as they were being scripted and created out of slavery, right, has has been fraught with political tension and ideology. It's one of the central ways I think that women have been able to articulate within the, the parameters of the politics of respectability, right? What is their ongoing fight for economic, for racial, but also for reproductive justice, right? Because that's what gets wrapped up in this context of freedom singing, right? And so I think because the spiritual has been for, for you know, centuries has been um, linked with the essence of Black existence, right? Because it's a reminder that really the African story in America is one that begins with slavery, right it's and that that's a that's a that's a an experience that cannot be divorced from from this conversation right and so that those songs have long served as a representative of the essence right this is why when Du Bois writes about it in the souls of black folk right that he the word folk is the populace, is the people, but it's the essence of those songs and what those songs embody, right? So in order to speak yourself into the narrative of freedom, right, you have to go back to that historical point where that question of freedom begins, and that is with the spiritual. So this female engagement with the spiritual, you know, takes on these very expansive levels of meaning, right? And so, you know, and what we have here is how every generation has in some ways tried to use this song to articulate and speak themselves in spaces so that Odetta is drawing on the historical past, Right. So she's speaking the past into the present where you have Camilla Williams and you have Eva Jesse and Marion Anderson who are taking that and showing how, you know, a, how generations of blacks who whose identities have been shaped in different spaces created these arranged spirituals. Right. right. And so still the essence is there, but it's reflecting a different experience is reflecting a different conversation that's being had. And then you've got uh, uh, Mahalia Jackson, right? And so many people say, oh, well, she's saying gospel, but she didn't sing gospel on that day, right? You know, she she when she sings, uh, uh, the songs that she sings and selects, you know, really speak to how the spiritual has this relationship with gospel music. Right. And so that um, that she chooses to align herself with that same practice. But what she's representing is that that how that spiritual gets morphed into a modern aesthetic of sacred music. Right. So you got a full sonic cultural representation of the black experience in America. Wow. Just in those songs alone. It's like the history is being, you know, the history book is being opened when you really look at all of those together collectively. Mm. How how did you come to start working on the march? Um as a scholar and kind of finding all of these ways that music had not really been fully scrutinized in the context of the march. I got asked to write a chapter for an anthology that never came out. 
And it was <laughs> it's, it's classic you, you, anthology. Yeah. You, you know, you know those stories, right? <laughs> so, so this person was not a musicologist, but was writing, doing this anthology of women's voices in the civil rights movement, and and by way of a colleague. Uh, you know, this person asked me to write on Black women musicians. So I initially started, you know, uh, researching Odetta. And Odetta led me to, you know, some other women, Rufa Mae Harris and whatever, whatever, whatever. And so, you know, and so I just started researching all of this stuff. And I kept coming across all of these references to her at the March on Washington, but I could not find, I couldn't find, it wasn't on the recording. It's not on the commercially released recording. And, you know, I, I couldn't really find it on YouTube or anything else, but, you know, Ebony magazine, you know, you, I, 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 you know, there were these mentions of her doing this stuff, you know, and, and so it just took me on a road, but, but, to be honest with you, Will, I feel like it's me coming full circle in my life and in my scholarship. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So as I say, you know, I was born in Danville, Virginia. I'm born in the late 60s. So most of my formative years, I'm living in the residual effects of what the movement was in my hometown, a hometown that ironically was the last capital of the Confederacy during the last days of the Civil War, right? So you've got these histories. you got this history of, of, the, of the Civil War and Confederacy, you know, and this fight, you know, over slavery. And then you have one of the bloodiest civil rights campaigns happening. And I'm listening. I'm listening to the same preachers that, uh, you know, march with King. I'm listening to them on the radio on Sundays. I'm, and I'm seeing the small changes that are taking place right in my community in terms of integration and and all of that but then i end up at miami university right in ohio and most people don't know that uh the western college for women which is directly across from miami was the site for the training for the 1964 mississippi freedom summer project so this is hallowed ground. You know, I'm on hallowed ground. The three civil rights workers that are killed in Mississippi, the Mississippi murders, right? They they came here. They were amongst the hundreds of young people who came and, and they trained, you know. And so I was surrounded by all of these ghosts of the past. And then I'm asked to do this piece. And as I'm doing this piece, like it's, I'm having this awakening, right? And, and I'm like, why are people not writing about this or that? And, and it just morphed over the years. It grew, uh, the March on Washington chapter, uh, really came out of me looking for other stuff in collections, um, and, and, and actually going to, you know, the Library of Congress in places and finding out Eva Jesse was the musical director. I was like, why? I never heard of this, you know, and tracing all of this stuff back and, and saying, you know what, we have this perspective of the march. I have to write on this a little more. And it morphed into a book, um, and I'm still completing the book, but this was going to be the, the chapter that kind of um, split the book into two different frameworks. The first was going to look at, you know, Odetta and female song leaders. And the second part of the book was going to look at popular music artists that, you know, take up this this mantra of, of singing for freedom. And, and I just couldn't make it work. <laughs> and not in the way that I was envisioning, but I was envisioning it very um, limited. And if I can be honest a little bit more here, the events that were taking place at the same time, just emotionally just took me some places. So I couldn't write after a while. And so the book then morphed into a lecture performance. And, and I just did it for a group here and started calling it she saying freedom and was actually just telling these like little vignette stories and then I had a live band and we would 
perform like Odetta, we would do Nina Simone, we would do Mavis Staples, you know, so kind of building this arc. And it was then that I could come back to this piece and, and really do so. You know, my thing is to illuminate what are these hidden narratives within our civil rights history, because we think we know the movement. Um, but what what but what I'm finding is that, you know, not only do we not have a clear sense of how music was really used, the, the expansive ways that music was used, we really don't know about some of these connections with women artists. Right. And so, you know, given the way that the march is memorialized, mythologized, kind of simplified today, and the way that it is used as a comparison point, and sometimes even, I think, to cut chastise in some way Black Lives Matter, or at the very least to be a forerunner to to current like political protests. Do you feel like you've developed a kind of understanding of the relationship between music and social movements that you see as being applicable to 2020 as well as 1963? I think so. You know, I get asked that question a lot, you know. Um, my, In fact, you know, I was I got a call from a friend of mine a few months ago about some of the the protests that were happening in Richmond um, over the statues. And she she was saying, you know, um, a lot of my students are saying that people aren't singing. People aren't singing. You know, people are they're either, you know, turning music on boom boxes or whatever, or they're doing a lot of chanting. She was like, why are they doing that? That's not real. And I was like, and so, you know, I was like, okay, so I'm going to be positioned in this moment to be the expert, you know? Right. And so we started unwrapping, unwrapping things. And I was like, you know, we have to remember that, that the, the, the way in which the culture around the, the march and the movement and the use of music there uh, during that period was a reflection of what our cultural values were at that time and how music fit into them. And two things that I think were central to how we got to the point that music could be used in that way. Um, both in that performative way at the march, but also on the grassroots level that we hear, you know, when we sing We Shall Overcome and all of these other freedom songs, right, that they were actually singing um, in moments of protest. The church and public schools, the way that music focused on, you know, when you think about every, at a certain point, everyone had, an ability to sing in a, in a collective sense, right? Because we were in school, we sang game songs, we sang, you know, the patriotic songs, you know, uh, whatever, you know, most of us did choir music, some kind of way, right? Um, but then when you think about the relationship to congregational singing in the church as well, but for this next, this new generation, they're cut off from those two things in most cases, you know, because after the civil rights movement, the relationship between the black church and the black community shifts. Right. Especially as we move into the 90s when, you know, black churches become more centralized or in their gospel on the middle class aesthetic. Right. This this um, prosperity gospel, you know, and so the lower class plight is less a part of the gospel experience, right? And so you you have an underclass and a struggling class that is no longer part of the social justice because the social justice narrative is not as pervasive in the black community. So there's a wide secularization that happens, right? And so that connection to those songs that were the underbelly, where the foundation of the civil rights movement is lost, the fact that you have a generation that's also not engaged in this notion of collective singing. Think about how people engage in singing now. I sit in front of a screen like this. I sit in front of my cell phone and I'm in my room with my guitar and I'm singing. It's very individualized, right? And so we don't have, you know, many of us don't have a collective notion of that kind of singing, right? And I said, you know, you're going to see various things within these communities. There's some communities that tried to, to, to replicate 
what was happening there. You know, I know here in Ohio, in Beaver Creek, Ohio, where John Crawford was killed at the Walmart, you know, you would see young people with their cell phones looking up these, you know, verses to some of these old freedom songs. And my students who went to Ferguson every week were telling me the same thing. You know, people were trying to trying to learn you know, these capture something of the exactly. But this new generation is focused more on chanting, right? You know, and so and 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 they have they have rejected the structure that really propelled the march on Washington. Right. Right. If you think about what we've been talking about in terms of whose voices were heard, right? You know, like on that kind of uh, structure at the March on Washington prevented certain voices and experiences from being heard. The Black Lives Matter movement is trying to reject that by emphasizing that everyone's voice is important, right? That's why there's no leaders, right? And which upsets people because they don't know who, what, you know, because right. it addresses the issues of the of the previous movement. Yeah, exactly. 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 You know, and what they're doing is what happens to the movement in the late 60s, Will, which is the focal point is not that music leaves the movement. It just becomes redirected. So versus us simply singing in these moments of protest or whatever. So we'll let our other artists provide the soundtrack to accompany what we will do you know so that's where the arethas and the james browns and the impressions and curtis mayfield and nina simone and all of that's where they become important and that's what we see happening today that's why you got her and alicia keys and lauren hill and janelle monet and you know numerous hip-hop artists are providing the soundtrack right to to what is actually occurring in the streets. Right. Well, that was all really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for this, this really educational interview. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Many, many thanks to Tammy Kernodal, who is professor of musicology at Miami University in Ohio, for that fascinating conversation. I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. You can check out links to more of her writing over at our website, soundexpertise.org. As always, I'm grateful to my producer, D. Edward Davis, for his great work on this and all of our episodes. And you can check out his music on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. And a big thank you as well to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing all our episodes to make them more accessible. Those transcripts are up on our website. I'm on Twitter if you have any questions, thoughts about today's episodes at Seated Ovation. Next week, I'm very excited to welcome my friend, Professor Paula Harper, to the podcast. We're going to be talking about internet virality and Rebecca Black's infamous Friday. See you then.